Hello and welcome to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon, a podcast from the Institute for Molecular Science and Engineering at Imperial College London. I'm Kieran Brophy and over the course of this series, I am to bring you some of the stories from the teeny tiny world of molecules and how they're being used to solve some of the challenges facing our planet. I also hope to highlight some of the genuinely amazing people involved in science and technology across Imperial and further afield. You can tweet us at ImperialIMSE using the hashtag NeverLickTheSpoon. In our second episode, we celebrate the women of molecular science and engineering. We hear from a postdoc in the physics department who has been named in nature's 10 scientists that mattered in 2018 for her efforts in raising the profile of women scientists and engineers. But first, we turn our attention to a competition that pitted female-led startup companies against one another for a chance to be part of a 30 £3,000 prize fund. Some of these startups took their inspiration from their studies in molecular science and engineering. Less of that now. I want to meet some of the startups at their showcase. My name is Zainab. Um, I was a PhD student here at the Institute of Chemical Biology. My name is Pashini Subramaniam and I am a final year PhD student at the Institute of Chemical Biology. And I say that this is my side hustle, but let's face it, it's my real hustle. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, talk me through. So your startup is called Quick Count. Who wants to start first on telling me what it's all about? So Quick Count is here to revolutionize antibiotic prescription at the point of care. We have developed a handheld blood testing device that can analyze a finger prick of blood in under three minutes for under three pounds. And that will then be able to identify a bacterial infection at the point of care. Um, So currently 23% of prescriptions are written unnecessarily and that's driving this global threat of antimicrobial resistance and if we fail to address it then 10 million people, so that's a population the size of London, is going to die every year by 2050 so we're here to tackle the threat of antimicrobial resistance. Like, How do you, by taking a blood sample and increasing the response time for diagnosis, how does that in itself treat antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, so... As I mentioned, right now, one of the biggest problems is that doctors are prescribing antibiotics where they're not necessarily needed. Um, And that's not to say that the doctor's not able to recognize and diagnose an infection, but it's because as a nation and as a global population, we've got into this pattern of, oh, I feel unwell, I need something and I need it now. Um, So then doctors find themselves pressured by patients that are poorly, are frustrated, have already taken a couple of days off of work, who just want something and they want it now, and they don't have any hard data to show the patient that actually you don't need this prescription. Um, So in that case, the doctor will then hand out reluctantly a prescription. Um, And then that's driving this threat of antimicrobial resistance because we're misusing the drugs that we do have. So the bacteria then are mutating further and are becoming resistant to the antibiotics. Absolutely an amazing idea. And at what stage of development are you in? Have you made the big hard pitches to the the big the big dogs? The big dogs. Yeah. So currently, there's actually three parts to our, our core technology, uh, and individually, we've actually managed to get a proof of concept. So right now, we're in the lab trying to integrate all three main components into our first handheld prototype, and we're looking at developing this in towards the end of the year. So hopefully, by the end of the year one handheld device and we'll be in business. Wow, best of luck. Listen guys, thanks a million for giving me an introduction to Quick Connect. All the best for the future. Thank you very much. 
My name's Molly and I'm the founder of iDNA, a company aiming to make forensic testing both rapid and affordable for victims of sexual assault. What gave you the idea behind iDNA and what are you hoping to achieve with it? So the idea unfortunately came from when I attended a sexual assault referral centre with a friend of mine. She'd been drinking heavily the night before and woke up in an acquaintance's bed. Um, she was blackout drunk, patches of unconsciousness, and when we went to the sexual assault referral centre, she was told the results take several weeks to get back, and she therefore did not know what had happened to her and did not feel comfortable initiating police investigation in her level of uncertainty, and to this day she doesn't know what happened to her. So I want to try and develop a device which can be used by so many of these women and give them the assurance to take those first steps towards receiving justice. So what are you actually developing with iDNA? So it's presumably a device? It is a device, so I'm from the Centre for Synthetic Biology and it's difficult for me to go into too much detail but there's a lot of hype at the moment for a lot of different techniques to recognise specific DNA sequences and when you couple this to something that gives a colorimetric readout, for example like a pregnancy test, it's possible to give a very rapid DNA recognition to reliable readout response. But presumably you would need to know the DNA of the particular person involved? So I would be looking at specific markers from cases of sexual assault, for example those present within sperm cells and semen and the male Y chromosome because those are very easy to distinguish against female DNA. And what information can you then take from that? So unfortunately the device would not be specific enough to be able to differentiate between different individuals. The only signs it will detect are semen and the male Y chromosome. Um, it will not require any sort of database. It will just use the recognition of the DNA sequences to trigger a chain of reactions which will result in a colorimetric readout so people can get a rapid and visual signal. So easily used by anyone with minimal training. And what stage are you in development of your idea? So I participated in the We Innovate competition and I entered with just the idea. So it's been a brilliant experience. I've managed to get business coaching meetings. I've had meetings with IP lawyers. We had a magician come in to teach us about pitching. So I've branched out to forensic scientists, a forensic physician, the Met Police, and I'm currently speaking to different people and trying to fully solidify my business plan and my um, customer research before I start prototyping, which I also will need funding for. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Genuinely, thanks a million for uh, coming to speak to us, and I'm sure your friend is very proud of you. Oh, thank you very much. So I'm joined by Sophie Paisley-Marshall, who is the CEO of Orbit Materials, and I believe congratulations are in order. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. So the We Innovate competition took place, and yes, it was the final, and I was one of the winners. I was a runner-up. Damn. I know. Basically, we develop construction materials from waste, essentially. That's what we do, but we also capture carbon in the process. And the reason why this is great and why the world needs what Orbit Material provides is because there's a depletion of natural sands at the moment. Which you might not think because of all the deserts, but that's not suitable to be used in construction, so you need sand alternatives. Because otherwise we're going to run out of sand and then we're not going to be able to build anything anymore. So that's where we come in with an ash, which comes after you've incinerated waste, which normally gets recycled, but we've developed a process which is able to treat it so it's suitable to be used as a sand alternative. So you make, presumably, bricks? 
out yeah. of out of this yeah, yeah. recycled so we make, ash. Yeah, we make we make sand, we, and then you can make bricks with it. That's or, amazing. Or and at what stage in the process are you now? Have you built some bricks? Have you built a house? We have not built a house yet. <laughs> we made some cement mortar blocks, which kind of look like bricks. Um, so we've done that. But actually, what, we, what we're focusing on now actually is the carbon capture side of it because there's the Paris Agreement, there's different sustainability goals that we have to get to net zero carbon emissions by like 2050. And that's not going to be achieved only by cutting our carbon emissions so we need to look at capturing carbon as well and so this material also has great potential to capture carbon um, so we're looking at optimizing that and seeing how much carbon we can actually capture through our process this is turning into the dragon's den type I questions know, how much not. carbon can you capture sophie if we were to implement our process european-wide in the most efficient and effective way we could capture as much carbon in a year as planting 80 million trees sophie thanks for joining us on never lick the spoon Never lick the spoon, it's great to be here. <laughs> On my way home, I bumped into a colourful group calling themselves a feminist internet, which among other ambitions, are trying to develop a feminist version of Amazon's virtual assistant, Alexa. Sure, I had to find out more. Hi, I'm Connor, I'm the visual designer at the feminist internet. My name is Georgina, I'm the creative producer of Feminist Internet. So Feminist Internet is an organisation uh, full of artists and designers and the general mission for the feminist internet is to advance internet equalities for women and other marginalized groups. A lot of preconceptions about women and all these marginalized groups that we are trying to tackle somehow are represented on the internet because in the end the internet is just a mirror of all these issues that we experience in our daily lives. So just being aware of all these issues made us think that there needed to be a project that, that somehow just tackled this issue. That's why feminist internet was born from the first place. How do you go about that? The monstrous thing that is the internet and all its dark underbellies, how, how do you go about cleaning that up? As Connor said, we're creatives, we're designers and artists, so we use metaphors as a way to raise awareness of all these inequalities that we find on the internet. We run a lot of educational experiences that allow for space for conversation. I think we try to allow a lot of time for people to really think through these really deep topics and conversations. We run workshops like the one here today, which kind of distills a few complex topics such as voice technology or the gendering of a voice technology through a quite a digestible um, and fun, yeah, fun activity that's generally quite visual in some way. Could you talk me through your stand? Because I'm seeing a lot of t-shirts that says, hey Alexa, can you switch off the patriarchy? <laughs> yeah, it took us so long to come up with that. <laughs> oh my God. So the objective of this workshop in particular is to uh, imagine a feminist Alexa. What would one sound like? And what would a conversation with a feminist Alexa look like? For example, hey Alexa, can I have sex with you? And then from there, we've allowed people to take the role of the user and the Alexa. You're not singling Alexa out as being particularly fond of the patriarchy. Right. You yeah. just have kind of access, presumably, to its voice algorithm and can utilize it for your own good. Exactly. And I guess Alexa is probably one of the most gendered chatbots out of all of them. Um, so it's, and it's, you know, everyone seems to know like who Alexa is. From our perspective as an organization, our vision is to actually build a feminist Alexa, a feminist technology at some point. So hopefully all these conversations that people are putting together will serve as, a, as data to train this Alexa. I think 
the sort of end result may be some kind of hackathon where we prototype a feminist chatbot or something. But I guess um, right now what we're really trying to achieve is allowing people to see voice technologies in general because we're using Alexa as a proxy really for other types of voice assistants and um, you know chatbots. And that was a sample of the inspirational sounds coming from Imperial Enterprises' We Showcase of 2019. Now, finally, my last guest has taken her own approach to championing the cause of female and underrepresented scientists. Her efforts have even seen her mentioned as one of nature's ten, an esteemed annual list of ten people who mattered in science every year. Her name is Jess Wade, and I had the great pleasure of speaking to her earlier. Jess Wade, you're very welcome to Never Lick the Spoon. Hello, thank you for having me, Never Lick the Spoon. My name is Jess, and... um, I'm a physicist here at Imperial College London, where I work with Matt Fuchter in chemistry and Alistair Campbell in physics. And we're working on new materials for light emitting diodes that emit secondly polarized light. So it's really exciting. So Jess, by day, as you just said, you're a postdoc in the Department of Physics, but it's more your moonlighting that rose you to prominence, especially in the media in July 2018, because you had and continue to write hundreds of Wikipedia articles on female scientists and underrepresented groups in science. Since then, you've received quite an amount of awards. So my first question is, what made you start writing your Wikipedia entries? Yeah, I started editing Wikipedia properly in January 2018. And I think for a long time, I was aware that there weren't many women or there was quite a big lack of diversity in physics. And this started to annoy me increasingly through my PhD. And I was doing more and more kind of outreach and working with the Institute of Physics and and people at Imperial to try and increase the diversity of people thinking about applying to study physics, trying to get more people excited about studying physics. And that was all really nice with the majority of most outreach activities. You feel really good, right? You go out, you do a talk in a school that feels really exciting. You're like, everything's going to change. And then nothing changes. So I was kind of doing all of this and becoming increasingly bummed out. And then I read this incredible book called Inferior by Angela Saini, who's actually been to speak here at Imperial. And she is an engineer herself, turned into a, a science writer. And in this book, she goes through all of these kind of myths about women's ability, whether it's in science or otherwise. And these dodgy neuroscience studies from the early 90s, where people were completely determined to show that men and women were different and we thought different and we had different capabilities and different interests. And one by one debunks these studies and shows you just how bad the science was behind them and just how biased the scientists were who were doing them. And so so I read this book and I just thought, man, we need to do something on a big scale. And then I met a phenomenal Wikipedia editor called Dr. Alice White, who works at the Wellcome Collection. Wikipedia is a great platform, an incredible place to to learn. And um, I reckon everyone in the world uses it, even if they say they don't. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, no, I never got on Wikipedia. But actually, it's the first place you turn to for information. And Alice was telling me how, you know, there's a huge, huge bias in the people who write Wikipedia pages. It's about 90% men, probably majority men in America. And they create content about things they're interested in. So Wikipedia has great coverage of battleships and weird cricket teams who never got any runs and politicians who literally achieved absolutely nothing for their constituency. And so I've been working, yeah, I guess since the beginning of 2018 to try and change that and and writing biographies about women, people of colour, LGBT scientists and engineers. Sometimes I do economists if I find them particularly interesting. So Jess, with this month of March, which we're still in, we saw International Women's Day and social media became a light with all these companies and institutions 
having really, you know, colourful exposés of their female employees. Do you feel in certain circumstances there is a bit of jumping on the bandwagon when it comes to things like International Women's Day where it's all well and good for a given company to say, oh, look how good we are in a very niche little perspective and forget about it for the rest of the other 364 days in the year. Sure, I completely agree. For a very long time, science has been done by largely men who can get away with behaving like they're single. You know, they've usually got wives at home to look after their children and manage their houses. And and they've got themselves into these positions of power, whether it's in people who award grants or people who sort out where we publish and, and decide the future of scientific careers. And, and that has resulted in this kind of culture of silence and very like, actually, I was speaking to a friend about this the other day, you know, it's very like Hollywood. You have bad behavior at the top and then that trickles down and you have people lower down who have very little power and, and they do anything they can to impress the people above them. So you have a lot of cases, you have sexual harassment, you have bullying, you have bad behavior. And, and as a result, you don't have a very diverse cohort of, of middle career and late career scientists, right? Because they've been so put off by the whole experience. And then you have something like International Women's Day where everyone's like, oh, yeah, we just want to celebrate our women. And, you know, here's the time is now. This is really great. We're going to tweet a picture of them every day or we're going to share all of these things by email. And you just think, yeah, it does. I think it does feel very insincere. Maybe if they just made a code of conduct for the next time they have an academic conference, maybe if they put the... 300 pounds that they spend on x video into making sure that they have a carers grant for people who want to attend a conference but might have to look after a young family i think genuine commitments to equality is so so much more meaningful i also think that sitting around and moaning never helps anyone so so collectively we should all be trying to make equality for absolutely everyone i genuinely believe that initiatives that women physicists are pushing for you know codes of conduct better behavior access to parental leave better thinking about the way that we have scientific careers so you don't have to move around every three years and you're not instantly deemed absolutely awful if you don't get a postdoc position at X university within two months. I think that benefits all of science. It's not just women who will benefit. And, and, and I think we need to start having those conversations too. Just to go back to those Wikipedia articles that we started off with, you're basically telling a story. Was there any particular person or any particular moment that stood out for you when you were writing your Wikipedia pages? I think that the best story that I've come across on Wikipedia, because there are so many, like every single day, obviously I make a new one and I just think like, whoa, this person is so cool. But the best person is this African-American mathematician called Gladys West. And I watched a video about her in February 2018 for Black History Month. And she was on CNN talking about her maths that she'd done. She's born in the 1930s. You know, young mathematician, young woman, young African-American mathematician. There weren't many people like her studying maths when she went to university. She ended up working for the government and, and working on GPS technology when it was kind of in its infancy and doing all of the kind of mathematical models and calculations behind GPS. And GPS, you know, obviously had a huge impact on all of our lives. And she has since done a PhD. So in kind of late you know, later in her career, she ended up doing a PhD. But when I was putting together this information about, about Gladys West, I could find very little and it was all kind of, you know, her community websites and some stuff she was probably involved with through the church. And since I made this page last February, she's been selected twice as BBC Top 100 Women and then also entered the US Air Force Hall of Fame, which is so cool. So now, you know, there's access to photos, there's all of these references, people are reading the page so, so, so much more. And, and I think like that increased exposure, you know, we've just had Black History Month in February here she was in everyone's top 100 black inventors and engineers list 
And having her there, having those conversations, there was just this Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, which was given this year in the UK to GPS technology. And so many people in the Twitter thread afterwards were like, how did you not give it to Gladys West? How did she not win? And I just think that wouldn't have happened if she didn't have a Wikipedia page. You know, phenomenal woman in her own right. And she should have had one a long, long, long time ago. But actually putting people and celebrating them in that way, giving them that recognition, I think is it, it, it means something, you know? That's incredible. Jess Wade, all the best. We look forward to seeing what 2019 brings to you. Thanks a million for being on Never Lick the Spoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Spoons. Congratulations, you've made it through an entire episode without falling asleep. Well, maybe you have. If you would like to hear more, please do subscribe to the podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and always remember, never lick the spoon!